sin that she had committed. And Jesus asked the most amazing question, and he said, well, actually, he gave the most uh, amazing order. He basically said, you who is without sin can cast the first stone. So there's this strange dynamic here where at the end of June we had a meeting and we talked a lot about, not a lot, but we talked a bit about an issue that is taking place in our denomination and us having to make decisions in the future about whether we're going to stay or we're going to leave. And we kind of talked about one sin, but that one sin was attached to biblical authority. Do we believe the Bible or not? So the challenge is whenever we do this, when we talk about sin in Scripture, the people that have to manage these things, the people that have to make decisions are also sinful people who are in need of a Savior. So what a strange paradox that we are in. Because the truth is we have to be able to do both. We have to be able to identify sin and and understand the grace that, that comes with knowing Jesus Christ. The grace is available to us but we also, have to have, we also have responsibility as individuals and as a church. And finally, our attitude within all of this must be an attitude of love. So I just gave you the gist of the sermon. If you want to fall asleep for the next 15 minutes, you can. But this is what I've been trying to get across because now where we're going to have to go now after this week is we're going to start talking about some of these things. This is the filter. We're going to take all these things through. Yeah, we're going to talk about sexuality. Through the filter of identifying sin, distributing grace, having responsibility as individuals and as a church, but then being men and women of love. So we're going to do this with sexuality. Something else that's, that's come up in our culture, we have to talk about church. We're going to talk about drunkenness. Yeah, we're going to talk about drunkenness in our church. And what scripture says about drunkenness. And, and how so quickly we, we can put on one side that this is so wrong, but I'm going to keep doing this because I've always done this. We have to be authentic to who we say that we are. And we're going to put everything through these lenses. And I've, I've asked you in previous weeks if you feel as if there's something maybe we should, something else that maybe we haven't wanted to go there in the past, but it's time that we do. Um, I'm open to hearing from you. We're going to be doing this series all the way up to New Beginning Sunday, which is the second Sunday in September. And I have about three or four different directions I want to go. But as you are the church and and this affects you, I'm open to what the Lord may be speaking to you as well. And so last week we talked about sin and we talked about identifying sin from calling it what the Bible says that it is. And identified what sin is, how it separates us from God, how it creates as it did in Adam and Eve. It creates an insecurity, a natural insecurity where before they were intimate with God in a relationship with them, all of a sudden they found the living God walking around saying, where are you? Because it wasn't him that had left. It was Adam and Eve. This is often what happens to us in our own insecurity, in our own sin. We think we run away from the living God and feel the sense of insecurity. They said they felt naked. So we identified what sin was, what it does to us. But then we also talked about grace. And how each and every one of us in this room have been given something, an incredible gift, an incredible cherish that we do not deserve. And so we have a calling to distribute that grace as well. And so today we're going to handle the bottom two, uh, which is responsibility and 
love. And then we're going to move on with some tough topics next week. So I hope you're ready, and I'm going to need your help, and I mean that through prayer. I mean that through a heart that is open, a heart that is full of love and full of grace, but also understands that we are going to continue in this church to uplift biblical authority. Can I get an amen on that one? We're going to continue to, to hold, uh, to have some biblical authority, um, but we're also, and, and that requires us some responsibility. And so we're, we're, I'm going to need your help. We're going to need your prayers. And I'm also going to need your discernment as we're working through some of these issues together. So as we get into the word today, uh, let's begin with the word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this was given to us, that this was really completed over, over 2,000 years ago, but yet it still speaks directly to such a time as this. And now, we have responsibility to find ourselves in the middle of this story. We need to find ourselves in ways that you are speaking to us in this moment and giving us, Lord, what we need to take steps forward in a culture that is shifting and changing away from you and feeling as if they cannot, they do not know and understand what it means to have a relationship with the living God. Lord, may we be the church of Jesus Christ that is open and ready to respond to your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, that, so today we're going to talk about responsibility. And as, as I've been sharing, there's two forms of responsibility here. If you want to um, uh, put the next slide up there, Joel. Two forms of responsibility, individual and ecclesiastical. Anybody know what ecclesiastical means? I don't say bless you. That's not what it sounds like when someone sneezes. That is, ecclesiastical means having to do with the church. So we have an individual responsibility, and we have a responsibility um, as a church, okay? As a church as a whole. So when we're talking about responsibility, the first verse I want to take you to is in Philippians 2. Excuse me. We're talking about individual responsibility. I want to take you to Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. By the way, before I continue, I um, wanted just to make sure everybody did get your communion today. We'll be completing. It should still be right out there at the front. If you did not get one, let's make sure we get you one. We will have a, a new communion format um, at the end of August, it won't be exactly like what we used to do, but it will be similar. It'll still be corporate. We won't have the plastic here anymore. Um, but and then we'll have a live animal sacrifice and everything. It's going to be great. Okay, just kidding, just kidding. But you're you're gonna you're gonna like it. We're gonna return to doing corporate communion together next week or next month. Excuse me. So this should we expect this to be our last time with the plastics, uh, if it be the Lord's will. So Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your brother's salvation. Is that what, is that what, is that what it says? What, whose salvation? Your, your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation with fear 
and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act. I like you understand that word to will to allow you to align yourself with what he wants in this world, not what you want in this world. To will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Whose purpose? Your good purpose? His good purpose. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling in order to will, and it, for it is God who works for in, in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. See, sometimes I have to put it to you really plain. Is something spiritual happening in you at this moment in your life or not? Are you yielding to the Holy Spirit in your life right now or not? I am crazy enough to believe as as a Christ follower myself that just as I can answer that question for myself at any point in time, you as a man or a woman of God can answer that question for yourself at any point in time. Are you resisting what you know the Lord wants to do in your life or are you allowing him to transform you? And see, this is why this is so important. Because we have a responsibility to do exactly what that text says. And if we are not doing what that text says, and we try to be men and women who think we can point the finger and, come on church, and deal with sin in someone else's life, then we are the big H word, right? We are massive, incredible, egg on our face, hypocrites. This has to be happening in your life. Because broken people, transformed people, people that know that they are in, not transformed, transforming people, people who are being transformed, know how to help others who are dealing with sin in their life. And the challenge is so often is that if we're dealing with something that is real to us and that we know we need to grow in, Oftentimes, our something, somebody else's something, maybe, maybe that which we would never in a million years see that we have a struggle with. And we say, how in the world could they call themselves a Christian and yet act like that? How in the world could they call themselves a Christian and be doing these things? But yet, we know what it's like to drop the ball time and time again because that's what repentance is. We keep coming back to the Lord for forgiveness We know this experience, and so we know how to welcome and to help someone else going through that same experience. I also always like to tell the story of what it used to be like in the Old Testament uh, when they first started dealing with sin. The Levitical system was set up because there was one God. They came out of Egypt. You remember the story, Jake? Remember the story? Uh, I'm looking for people from VBS that were here last week. But they came out of Egypt, and Pharaoh finally let them go, and they became their own people in the, in the wilderness, and God was saying, you have all these other gods. There's one way to know that I, am, that I am God, the one true God, and here is how you come to me. And they set up the Levitical system, and the first offering was the burnt offering. And one of the craziest things about that is that when you left the burnt offering, if you get into all the details, the gore and all the details in the Old Testament, it's really cool. But you can get into all that really gross stuff in the Old Testament. And after they would walk away from that, they would walk back through the camp 
with blood and guts all over them. Because that's what it would have required to do this animal sacrifice. See, I was going somewhere when I was talking about animal sacrifice a little bit ago. So then people would know that they had been to the tabernacle to atone for their sin. And that just as that person needed to do that, my day is coming soon. I'm going to have to go to the tabernacle to do the same as the Lord is required to atone for my sin as well. Now, atonement is actually a strong word because that's not exactly what it was doing. The true atonement happened one day a year. But my point is that we all had to experience this humility, the humility of, of taking upon the blood for ourselves. And that's what we do in the New Testament is we take upon the blood of Christ for ourselves. And if we are doing that, we can understand a lot better how to help someone else who's experiencing sin in their life in some fashion. So we have this individual responsibility, but we also have an ecclesiastical responsibility. The first text I want to share with you about that is in Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5, and it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. It says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Good word. I must read that one again. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions Then they can take pride in themselves alone without, what we just talked about, comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. Now this is the culture, this really, now that I'm looking at this, I think this fits the individual context even better than ecclesiastical, but he's speaking to the church as a whole. So now we're going to get into the key text where I asked you to go in Matthew 18, and I, I wonder... How many of you have even heard this verse put this way before? Because this is, is a very um, key text foundational for church discipline that very few people, for whatever reason, have ever understood or have ever read before. And we find this in Matthew chapter 18, and I'm going to go to verse 15 through, um, I'm going to read all the way through 20, but for now just 15 through 17. Ecclesiastical asked the question, so how... Do we deal with these kinds of issues? How do we deal with when we know there's someone that is a part of our church that is continuing in a pattern that is destructive? What do we do when there's people in our church who have actually wronged us or hurt someone else and they've actually become destructive in our midst? Now, I can speak with integrity and say at this moment, there's that, I don't see that happening in this church. So we're, we're speaking more um, theologically. We're speaking as we cast vision for our church in the future. We're speaking as we will have to make decisions about even our denomination. How are we going to handle these kinds of things when they come up in our congregation? When real people come in with issues that we may think are taboo sitting here in this room. How are we as a church going to deal with this? And here's what Matthew says. Here's what Matthew 18, 15 says. It says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault 
Just between, here's what it says though, just between the two of you. I like that. Just stop there for a second. I've heard, because I've heard this verse used. <laughs> I've heard this verse used by people who say, let me tell you what so-and-so did in a church the other day. Let me tell you what so-and-so's doing. I've got seven or eight people that I've told what so-and-so is doing, and now I'm going to go confront them, just me and them. You kidding me? You just included seven other people. It's not you and them anymore, is it? You needed to feel like you needed some kind of support because you didn't have the stuff you needed to go confront and to go have a loving conversation with someone that, that you wanted to grow with, your brother and sister in Christ. So oftentimes when people even use this verse, they usually already take it out of context because they've already talked about seven or eight different people about how they're going to go confront someone. They've already brought others into the mix without giving their brother or sister a chance to respond. So let's remember what that says. Just between the two of you, if they listen to you, you have won them over. Done. Two people dealing with a delicate issue in someone's life. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Isn't that the way the church should be? We don't have to bring all this out into everybody else's attention. We don't have to to continue to tell about what so-and-so is doing. Maybe it just takes someone who has the stuff that they need and loves them enough to go talk to them, to go help them, to go, to go see if we can just pray together, see if I can understand where you're coming from and why this is happening. And we need those kinds of people in the church that know what to do because they understand because when sin is happening in their life, they know what it's like to be vulnerable. They know what it's like to be insecure. And they want someone to help them, not rebuke them or point their finger at them or include everyone else in a rally against them. They want someone to love them and help them. And this is where, again, as I said, the scripture really gets taken out of context. So verse 16, it says, But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen... Tell it to the church. This is the time when you are now permitted to make it a bit more public because it's, and again, this was something that someone did to someone. So if this pattern continues of someone doing something sinful to someone else, there's a likelihood that this something sinful is going to continue to be destructive and it's going to create a pattern in the church, okay? A pattern in the church that we would be allowing because it's anti-Christ. It's in opposition to what the Lord wants us to do. And here's what it says. And remember, I want you to remember that piece, that they are doing something to someone. It's not just something privately that's going on in their life. It's something where they're actually hurting someone else in some way. Um, That's what this text is referring to. I said, I already read verse 17. So now verse 18. Oh, no, 17. I'm sorry. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church... Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. When I went to study that verse, I was really hoping it said something nice, that it just meant, oh, let them keep coming to your church, but maybe they won't be in leadership or whatever. But I wish it would have said that. That would have made it a lot easier to preach. But almost every scholar agreed that the context of that was pretty much excommunication. (laughs) That if someone was continuing to act in a destructive manner, was harming other people's lives and affecting other people's lives because the sin that they were refusing to change 
it is best if you no longer ask them to fellowship with you. I wish the Bible didn't say that, but that's what it does. Now, but it does say pagan or tax collector. So now, we then, though, they didn't say anything specific that we're supposed to do. That's just the language that Scripture used. And this is Jesus' words, by the way. He said pagan or tax collector. Okay? He didn't say what that means. That's all he said was pagan or tax collector. Well, then there's another filter that this goes through next in verses eight, in verse 18 through 20. Or, yeah, 18 through 20. He says, truly I tell you, you, referring to the church, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I want to read the rest. Again, truly I tell you that if two on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. You've heard that verse before, haven't you? Where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Have you heard that verse before? Just lift up your hand just so I know you're familiar with it. And I would bet that if I asked you when was that verse, what kind of context was that verse used in? Most everybody would say in the context of prayer, you know. And it's not, it's not so antichrist that it's used that way, but people get gathered together in their circle of prayer. Lord, I know that as we gather together, we're two or three together. You are with us. Even if it's just me and me, me, I'm the only one that came to church. Me and my son's the only one that came to church this morning. You're with us. And that's how they like to use that context, which is fine, but it is out of context. Because the context is actually church discipline. So I want you to notice what I just said. Jesus says pagan and tax collector. He didn't give specifics on what that looks like. The specifics come next. The specifics come when people within a congregation come together and seek the Lord and make a decision about what we should do in this context. It's as if the Lord is with us to, the Lord is with us in this moment. Because there's an understanding he can't speak to every context of sin in that moment, in that verse. But he's saying that I'm going to have some people that are going to be allowing the Lord to transform them in their own lives. They're going to have an anointing to know how to deal with these things because they understand what grace is. And they're going to come together. They're going to understand what sin is. They're going to understand what grace is. And those are the people, the members of the church, that I'm going to anoint with my responsibility to help others, but also to protect the congregation of Jesus Christ. If you believe that, I ought to get an amen on that one as well. well listen, this is important stuff that, that I see one direction in, this, in, in our culture today where we really just like to point the finger in another direction without first pointing it back at ourselves and dealing with the sin in our own life. So this is the context with with. Matthew, Matthew 18 is presented. So now I want to move on to the last one. Love. Before we move on, just a quick point of emphasis. Was, was Jesus loose in Matthew 18 and dealing with sin in the church? No, he wasn't at all. He actually said this is pretty important. You should do something about this. And here's how you do it. And it's going to require some people that are members of the church that are dealing with 
that they're allowing the Spirit of God to transform them, come together and get wisdom and being together. And as you do that, as you seek me, as you come together to make decisions on these matters, there I am with you. So next, love, the last piece. The Bible says that if we attempt to do in Matthew 18, in 1 Corinthians 13, it says that we are like a clanging cymbal, a loud, noisy mess that is just all pomp and, and, and no substance. That it's just it's actually going to be, cause more destruction and less healing. It's just going to create more destruction if we're just trying to do this without love because we're mad, because someone hurt our feelings, because somebody said something to us and they didn't apologize to us yet. If if that is our attitude, we are going to fail in this matter because we're just going to be a clanging, like a clanging symbol, it says. So here's what then 1 Peter says in 4.8. 1 Peter in 4.8, he says, above all, love this verse, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love covers over a multitude of sins. The Greek word there is, is that agape word, which is the highest form of love, which is that love which someone lays down their life for their friend, as Jesus said. That's what agape is. It's, it's actually God's love for us. That's the, the word that Peter uses there. Agape each other deeply because agape covers over a multitude of sin. Christ's love atoned for sin. Human love alone does not atone for sin, but God's love us, love in us points others to the cross where atonement can be found. This came right from the commentary that I was studying. It simply said, Christians, and I've already said this in many ways this morning, Christians forgive faults in others because they know how the forgiving grace because they know, K-N-O-W, the forgiving grace of God in their own lives. We are forgiven people. Therefore, that is the prerequisite. (laughs) Being grateful for our own forgiveness is the prerequisite to be able to forgive someone else. Be able to love someone else. See, there's this most natural love that we have for our kids and those that are closest to us, but, but there's also this love that is supernatural, that, is, that it just comes when it comes from spending time. It comes with a history of being with the living God. I've told this story before, but it's a good story, so I, so I, uh, I like to tell it again and, and remind everybody here just how crazy I am sometimes. But, but I, uh, I was talking to my dad just, just last night about a time when I, had, uh, I went to a revival in Canada, and there were some really cool things happening. I was, I was a youth pastor at a church up in Cleveland. And you guys have, maybe had, there's different opinions in this room, but I'm sure you've, you've probably seen the times, you know, on TBN where somebody's laid hands on someone and they've fallen out, you know. And, and uh, I'm sure people have different opinions of that, but for me it's happened to me one time. And I like to tell the story because... What the, the, the way I felt, what I experienced was almost exactly identical to what I just shared in Scripture. Um, it happened to me one time, and I remember what you know, the pastor was praying for me. He was praying for an anointing for ministry. And the best way I could describe the way I felt after I came out of that experience was a baptism of love. The Lord in that moment, all you know, and even in ministry and in your life as well, you have all these 
people in your life that I, I'm just going to guess at time to time or maybe a lot you get annoyed with from time to time. You don't want to talk to them for a moment or you just want people to get the heck out of your way so you can go get to your point of relaxation, right? You don't ever have days like that, do you? Is that just me? I'm that messed up? Do you have days like that? And in those moments, after that experience, it, it didn't last forever. It lasted for almost a month for me personally. But that was gone. All of a sudden, I, it's like everyone I saw I wanted to draw near to. <laughs> and I wanted to give them something. I can't describe what give them meant, but it's like something from my heart. Something to affirm them. Something to remind them of who they are and who God is in their life. It's if I had a baptism of love. I had been forgiven. I had been received. God had given me something that I couldn't help but give to others. And that's what happens when we have a history, when we have some time, some experiences with the Holy Spirit in our own life. We have love to give as others. Just if God gave us something that we don't deserve, we have the ability to give others something that they don't deserve. So the attitude with which we have to deal with these things in our church must be an attitude of love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now in much more... Oh, that's the wrong verse. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Um, Tracy had, had, had read this earlier today. Do you got that one up there for me? Thank you. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not deny delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, and always perseveres. At this time, we're going to begin to prepare our hearts for communion. And I'm going to ask Joel to put John 17, verses 25 through 26 up there. The last verse tonight, John, John 17, verses 26 through 25. 25 through 26. This verse is the, the last, uh, really one of the last things that Jesus prayed for his disciples before his crucifixion. And I want us to think about what we've just been talking about, about how what the Lord wants for his disciples as he's leaving. This is his prayer. It's like there's this understanding that, hey, I'm not going to really be here anymore in the flesh. So this dispensation of Jesus in the flesh being on earth with disciples is about to end. And now what I like to call is what's going to take place is the tag team with the Holy Spirit that's going to be present and the lives of you and me. And this is what the Lord wants to happen in our lives. He says, this is what God, Jesus prays to God the Father. He says, righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This time I want to encourage you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we prepare for communion.
See, the challenge with a message like this is I can't, I can't give you every pragmatic situation. We can't talk about specific individuals. We can't talk because things, there's going to be dynamics that are going to be different from person to person because the Lord is giving us an anointing to love real people, not a template. He's giving us an anointing to love real people. Just as I have loved you, I pray that my love would be in you and that you would have this anointing to love. So yes, church, we need to hold some biblical authority. We need to call sin, sin. Yes, church, we, need to, we have a responsibility as a church to, to deal with sin in our own lives and to, to deal with it in the church. But we also must be people that come back to the table just like we are in this moment and continuing their history, their relationship with Christ and be reminded that we ourselves are still sinners in need of a Savior. And God, in this moment, we want to do a work in our life. So I'll read from the text in just a few moments what these elements are about, but you know this already. You know that the cup requires forgiveness. There's something in your life that you know that you've fallen short of. And this moment, just for a few seconds, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to give you a chance to ask for forgiveness. You want to open your mouth, you want to whisper, if you want to do it meditatively, I'm going to give you a few moments here asking the Lord's forgiveness. This time, I want to ask that you prepare your elements for communion. That's just a fancy way of saying, take off the plastic. Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we thank you for your life. We thank you for the sustenance that you have given us. We thank you that, that you have not left us alone, but you've empowered us with your spirit uh, to be the church in such a time as this. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, we thank you for the cup. We thank you for your blood that was shed for us, and we thank you that we got a table that we get to keep coming back to. As Adam and Eve were insecure, Lord, you invite us, And they ran away from you in their sin, Lord. Today, you invite us to draw near to you and our faults and failures and find grace once again and recognize exactly what it is that I have done for you. There is nothing you can do that will separate you from the love of God. So today, Lord, we say we thank you for your blood and we thank you for your forgiveness. Let's partake of the cup together. Lord, we thank you that you prepared a table 
even in the presence of our enemies. You've always provided a place for us to return to. You have a church. We thank you for this church that we have a community to come to. Lord, we thank, we're thankful that we have a God that is all-present, all-powerful, and all-knowing. And Lord, at any moment in time, we can return to you. So what better day than today? Thank you, Lord, that in any moment we can say yes. And for all those here that have, continue to find your grace, your forgiveness, and find your power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand for your benediction today. So may you go this morning upholding the authority of the word of God. May you recognize your responsibility as an individual and as a member of a church congregation. But may you be a man or a woman that distributes grace that you have been given and with love as God has loved us. God bless you and have a wonderful week. Thank you.